Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, your guide to everything love, sex, intimacy, and relationships. Each week, your host, Zach Beach, interviews new experts on love, including couples therapists, relationship coaches, sex educators, and best-selling authors. Learn the best tips and cutting-edge wisdom to better love yourself, others, and the world. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible meditation teacher, author, and leader, Spring Washam. Hello, Spring, and welcome to the show. Hi, Zach. Yeah, it's good to be here with you. Today, we are going to talk about cultivating a fierce heart. But before we get into that, let's learn a little bit more about Spring. For those that don't know, Spring Washam is a well-known meditation teacher, author, and visionary leader based in California and Peru. The author of A Fierce Heart, Finding Strength, Courage, and Wisdom in Any Moment, Spring is a pioneer in bringing mindfulness-based healing practices to diverse communities and is one of the founders and core teachers at the East Bay Meditation Center located in downtown Oakland, California. She is a member of the Teachers' Council at Spirit Rock Meditation Center in Northern California and has practiced and studied Buddhist philosophy in both the Theravada and Tibetan schools of Buddhism for the last 20 years. She is also a shamanic practitioner and is the founder of Lotus Vine Journeys, an organization that blends indigenous healing practices with Buddhist wisdom. Spring's writing and teachings have appeared in many online journals and publications. She has been a guest on many popular podcasts and radio shows, and she currently travels and teaches meditation retreats, workshops, and classes worldwide. Hello, Spring. How are you doing today? <laughs> wow, that was a lot. That sounded pretty good. <laughs> it is a lot. You so, must be so busy. Well, you know, usually, you know, I have a pretty full schedule. I certainly had my 2020 schedule so mapped out in January. You know, it was mm-hmm. just like, yes. <laughs> now it's all changed. And here we are in the present moment, June 23rd, 2020. Just I like to mark things almost like a time capsule these days. Mm-hmm. It's true. It's sometimes hard to even like, you know, you don't know what day of the week it is. You don't know. What <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So many less markers. So Spring, I I really love the work that you do in the world. I've frequented East Bay Meditation Center many times and I love your presence and you in imbue so much light and happiness in your way of being. And I was surprised to read in your book about just how challenging your childhood was. You wrote about, very vulnerably, wrote about watching your parents get lost to addictions, your mother to food, and your father to drugs, money, and life on the street. And also how you yourself struggled with self-hatred and depression. So I'm so curious. I know, you know, it's hard to answer, you know, how you got (laughs) to where you are today. But I just think about all the love and light that you imbue and how did you get from point A to point B? Yeah, I think that's, you know, that's a really good question. And I honestly, I think the biggest thing that helped me in my life was meditation practice and finding a meditation practice in the midst of so much going on. I was very lucky at a young age. I fell into, first it was Paramahasa Yogananda, the autobiography of a yogi, the book, Mm, and mm -hmm. so many people, like Steve Jobs gave that book out, you know, I I think it was 
some big event. He was giving that out as a book that inspired him and others, you know, millions of others. But I really do attribute it to learning how to meditate because even at a young age, I always had this really deep sense like something is wrong with our minds. You know, I would get Mm, like, mm -hmm. why are people acting like this? Why is there so much pain? You know, I was very observant as a child, very empathic, very aware of the adults and the behavior of adults around me. And I somehow knew it's like something is wrong with our thinking. Something is wrong with our minds. You know, so that led me into really being curious about the mind, like this mind-body process and what happens, how we think and how we believe and why are we so emotional. You know, my learning about emotions became very important to me because everyone around me was so emotional, you know, rather it was sorrow or rage or a mix of it all. So in some ways that led me very early on to studying psychology when I was a teenager. Then self-realization gave me the idea of meditation. And then when I found Buddhism quite by accident, you know, I saw there was this map that really resonated with me about the mind and the heart and the emotions and awareness. And I was like, yes. And I applied the teachings directly. I always have this memory of my first retreat and how powerful that was because it was the first time I started to work with my own mind and my own heart directly. Mm, That's wonderful. And Meditation, it's true, has an extreme potential to transform our minds and transform our hearts. And it's amazing that you had this keen awareness of looking at a world of sort of untamed minds or perhaps closed hearts and this sort of violence and aggression and ill will that that harbors. Now, I know a lot of people like when they start meditating for the first time, it's it's hard. You know, it's hard like to sit for like even just a minute, two minutes with our own thoughts because of everything that comes up and all the conditioning that comes up as well. So I'm wondering what were some of the initial challenges that you encountered and how did you get over them? Yeah, you know, I think that that is you know, this kind of restless mind everyone talks about, you know, I really get it. It's like, you know, we're always working with these two energies in our experience, sleepiness and restlessness. You know, they're the two energies Mm. we have to balance. When we embark on a meditative practice and we're learning and we're training the mind, I think one of the things is that in our culture, we, we want instant results. You know, I think that's one problem. We're like, well, I took a meditation class this weekend. Why am I still restless? You know, (laughs) it's like we have to really look at this as a lifestyle and that it's a long-term training that we're doing. And the more we invest in it, the more we understand how to work with ourselves. You know, so it's always a challenge to come and sit down. One of the hardest things about our modern culture is the, the busyness. You know, even this Mm -hmm. time where we're not working technically in an office or this is like a really busy time for people, you know, we fill in space. And so our culture is moving so fast and we're so busy that the idea of sitting in the present moment, it's hard for us to unplug. You know, I think in ancient times, it was easier. There was no Wi-Fi you know, in Tibet, they walked for, you know, a month to go talk to their teacher. Well, that's very meditative. By the time they got there, the questions were answered, right? It was more space 
to be present. So we're kind of trying to carve out the spaciousness. It's challenging, you know, and, and how you begin is you just start with wherever you are, monkey mind, crazy mind, and you just start to try to work with doing longer and longer periods. You know, it's like acclimatizing to the present moment, you know, and you, you just do, you learn by doing. So I'm hearing you talk about meditation as a way to tame the mind, the restless mind, even cultivate a level of awakeness beyond the sleepiness and restlessness that someone might feel in meditation. And I'm wondering, where does the heart come in? Because you talk about love and compassion and forgiveness. And when we think about meditation, or many people think about meditation as almost a form of like mental exercise, you know, it's mm. like a you know, form of mental hygiene, perhaps to clear the thoughts of the mind. But where does the heart come in? How does meditation open the heart? Well, oftentimes in the West, it's taught like that because what we've done is we've kind of taken mindfulness out of its context being this great tradition. You know, we've kind of, so it comes through a tradition where there are many practices, you know, the word mindfulness really rooted in the Buddhist tradition, but we've taken it out of context. We've like pulled one quality off the map, right? And we said, everybody, this is what we need to cultivate. But we're forgetting that the real path of transformation, it comes with the whole lineage behind it. And so that's one of the challenges is this one quality, you know, it's like mindfulness, power mindfulness, the five mindfulnesses, you know, and you see people applying it in their work and how to, how to be more focused. And so sadly, it's gotten hijacked. And so the perception is, is that, okay, this is going to make me almost like some kind of pill that is going to make me hyper-focused or make me feel happy or, you know, and we forget the whole path is a, it's a basket of ingredients. You know, you can't take one ingredient. Mm. If you take, you know, you're taking one ingredient out, but it's a big one, right? You're not going to get the same cookie if you take out the chocolate chips out of it, right? <laughs> it's going to be different. <laughs> so mm-hmm. we, our culture has done that in with the meditation mindfulness world. So that's okay. So let's talk about how we work with the heart. When you are really practicing awareness, it's actually not about the mind in those moments. It's the opposite of that. Mostly we're caught up in our mind all day, right? We're thinking about the past. We're thinking about the future. We're like, oh no, oh my God, what am I doing? I got to call this person. Where's my Zoom link? You know, we're just like all over, right? No, 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 no. The mind's just like a waterfall, 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 stress, worry, some happy moments for sure. Laughter, then worry, then wondering what's going on on CNN. Oh my God. Oh my God. You know, we're, we're kind of more like that. So the, the meditation is, is the idea of the meditation isn't to apply some kind of technique. It's actually just to begin to rest into stillness. It's like when one thought and story ends right before the next one begins, you know, the next big, there's a gap called now here. And we're trying to learn how to live in that gap right? How to expand, like, what is it like to press the pause button? And when you do that and you begin to feel your body, right? The first observation is, oh my God, I have a body, right? That's like, oh, wait, wait, it's breathing. Wait, I I feel my toes. I feel my neck. And what happens is when we start to really rest in the body, we'll guess where the heart is. It's not in the mind, it's deep in the body. 
So the Mm. more present we become and the more we feel the body, the more we're going to be able to feel the heart, right? You can't do that if you're just living in the mind hour after hour. In fact, we get cut off when we're just living in the mental realm. We're not understanding that we're also, you know, these bodies have tremendous information and wisdom and knowledge. So the more we learn to come into the body, which we do through meditation, through embodiment practices, the more, the much closer you are to accessing your heart, right? To feeling your heart. This is a feeling path. This is not mental gymnastics and it is hijacked. You know, it's appropriated <laughs> right yeah. now. And so there's confusion around it, which is okay. That's how things happen in the West. We just go with that. So I hope that kind of answers a little bit, you know, and that's a deeper reflection that, you know, we can definitely go in that direction and talk more about. Absolutely. I really appreciate that distinction that the real path of transformation is taught with a whole lineage behind it. Yes. And I also just love that metaphor that like basically in between each thought, there is a gap and we're learning to live in that gap. And in that gap, we come into our bodies and we come into our hearts. So what does it mean when we talk about a fierce heart? Moving on to kind of the subject of your book. So if the stillness is the realm of the heart and the heart is deep in the body, once we get in touch with that stillness and heart, what do we want to do or what can we do to make it fierce? What does that mean? Well, you know, I think that when I was working on the book and I started thinking about the stories of my own life and thinking about the people around me, you know, being at the East Bay Meditation Center in downtown Oakland and much of what I did, you know, as a teacher was tell stories and listen to stories, stories of freedom, stories of families, stories of personal tragedy and triumph and love. And I started to recognize the people, myself and others. And I say the word fierce is this quality of being able to hold this complexity of the human experience. Like, you know, here we are, you know, in the midst of this physical coronavirus epidemic and health. And then we have a civil rights movement happening and we have the political structures and we have, we're watching videos of people murdered on TV right now and shot and all this injustice. It's like, how does the heart hold that? And I think when I think of someone who has a fierce heart, I think of Dalai Lama, I think of Dr. Martin Luther King, I think of Harriet Tubman. You know, it's like we hold the truth of life and then we don't turn away from it. And there's a fierceness to the heart. You know, it's not just Unicorn Island, you know, it's like, whoa, this is some really important thing. There's a lot of suffering. And so the heart to me that's fierce is the heart that's able to hold the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows of this human life with dignity and love. And that's fierce, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So that's, that was the energy that I was trying to get. You know, it's not just that we're going to sit still on the cushion. We may, but then at some point the body moves from that space and it moves into action and sometimes it moves with a fierceness of of standing up or being like, this is unjust. No, you know, it's mm. like the fist just rises up. You know, we put ourselves on the line of something. 
that's fierce to me. Mm, that's so fierce. Mm-hmm. And the, the courage it takes yes. not to turn away from things. And you talk about all the ways that sort of manifest in our lives, including you mentioned forgiving everyone for everything. Also, even coming to love the people that might hate us or to love Mm. the people that might hate a certain group that we identify with. And you mentioned the police brutality, you mentioned the pandemic that we are in. Before we go to almost sort of a global compassion, I wouldn't mind staying in the realm of the individual because Mm. when you talk about forgiving everyone for everything, I'm wondering how that might play out in, in your own life, in your own circumstances. Yeah, you know, and and even to say that statement, you know, I forgive everyone for everything. It's like that's an aspiration. You know, it's like for me, I'm, you know, I wrote that a couple of years ago and I printed that and it's like that's the trajectory of the heart. You know, like this is where I'm trying to get to everybody and it's not easy. <laughs> you know, and I look and see what's going on and I see as a black woman I'm the object of all this energy and the community and you know, and I have four brothers that are black, you know, and it's like, ah, man, this really hurts. This is personal, you know, kind of like that. And, and then I watch my mind. Well, do you forgive everybody for everything? And, and some days that answer is yes. And some days I'm really sad, you know, and, and I just know that I'm inclining my mind toward that. Because I do believe that that is the highest path. And forgiving everyone doesn't mean I don't act stand up, speak my truth. You know, it just means that I'm not, I'm getting the arrow out of my heart. You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. I I can't function like that. I can't function if I'm rooted in hatred. It just, it just hurts me too much. So that's my aspiration. And I want to say for our listeners, it's brutally hard at moments. You know, many people are not there, but they do understand like, oh, it's, The goal is to let go and to be a force of good. You know, we all know this on an intellectual level, but we got work to do with forgiving each other. And I have work to do with forgiving people, you know, always in my own family. My own parents, you know, hurt me deeply in many ways, unconsciously, of course. But I I have really forgiven them. I continue to forgive them you know, for all of their delusions, you know, and, and I trust that they are helping me forge a deeper fierceness. You know, you got to practice, right? You got to, you need people to work on, you know, these are qualities that you, you forge in relationship, right? And families, you know, you got to have some challenges to grow. And so I've had those challenges and I still continue to have them and I'm sure I'll have them to my last breath on this planet, you know? <laughs> mm, I I just love you, your way of sort of just honoring the aspects of the human experience, like saying that it makes you sad, saying that these are aspirations and that these are directions we're trying to go. But of course, being human, we all have certain obstacles around it. And it's just so very rooted in, in your truth. So you mentioned... Being a black woman in this world, you mentioned having four brothers that are black and also mentioned the fierce heart and able to hold all the challenges that this entails. So I'm wondering, how does one love the people in this world, the systems in this world that go against your way of life, that don't honor who you are as a human being? And I'm wondering, how do you deal with 
the anger of systemic oppression? How do you even cope with something like the fear of you know one of your brothers going out not knowing a hundred percent if they're if they're going to be coming home? When you talk about embracing the ten thousand joys and ten thousand sorrows, how do we embrace the fear, the anger, the 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 hatred that we see from other people? Yeah, you know, well, this is where I rely a lot on my Dharma training and years of studying core teachings and and studying them in a way that I I know that they're true. You know, for me, the journey of awakening from my understanding of the Buddhist core teaching is that, you know, we're on this path of purification, you know, that this is a whole journey from ignorance to wisdom, right? And the ignorance is what we're seeing, isn't it? And it's rooted in greed, it's rooted in hatred, and it's rooted in delusion. And as a young practitioner, I was always studying those those three qualities because the Buddha talked about when the mind is pure of greed, pure of hatred, and pure of delusion, it expresses natural qualities and it's attained nibbana, right? So that's the end of the confusion. And so for me, that was the movement of my life is like uprooting these out of the mind stream. And so when I look around and I see people who are maybe killing others or in a hate group or, you know, promoting violence against innocent people, it's like, oh, right. What I'm hating is the greed, hatred and delusion. What I'm upset, not hating, but what I'm, I'm, it's not them. It's that mind state. You know, Jesus kind of said the same thing, hate the sin, not the sinner or something. <laughs> I don't know what came, why that came to me right now, but I've been thinking a lot about biblical references you know, lately, you know, the Bible. <laughs> what, mm-hmm. what does the Bible say about all this? You know, love thy brother. You know, we're looking for everything to hold on to right now. So I really look at the systems of oppression also are the consciousness of greed, the consciousness of hatred, the consciousness of delusion. And so as we see, for me, as we start to question the systems or like even the police, like we're paying for this. My tax dollars go to the police department and fire department. It's like, so I'm funding them. So when we say defund, what a radical idea to not, it's not like we want to just like, yes, do you know all of our tax dollars are supporting this? So like, wow, mm-hmm. what are we supporting? Or, you know, it's just, it's just to look at that in a deeper way. Like, what are these systems based on? And can we start to wake up for the systems that are really rooted in hatred and start to transform them? So I try to look at it like that. And how can I then, okay, if this is greed, hatred, and delusion, well, what wakes that up? You know, wisdom and compassion. Like, what can I do to be an antidote, right? Because I, these, regardless, I don't want these energies to stay confused. (laughs) The idea is like, hey, can we have a dialogue? Can we Mm -hmm. talk about this? Like, you know, is there a place to talk about this? Can we come together in some way? So I think the healing of our nation is going to be with the people sitting down and breaking bread together and sharing stories. It just has to come from the heart. We can try to enact all these laws and they won't mean anything until the heart's in it. The heart is the real system. It's what creates justice. It can't just be passing a lot of new laws. 
that can, that is good. That may protect lives. Like, but what we're really looking at is a shift in consciousness. Isn't that what we want? A shift in the heart. I really appreciate that returning to the Dharma or just returning to the spiritual teachings that do talk about this universal love, this universal Mm. compassion, to start with ourselves, to look at our own hearts and minds, how we're cultivating or how we also have, you know, harbor inside of us the potential for hatred and and delusion. Even mentioned Jesus is the same way, you know, thinking about this idea that we have Christ consciousness or Mm. Christ nature inside of us along with our Buddha nature. And you also mentioned that in your book about this idea of Buddha nature. And you're talking about once we dispel the greed, hatred, and delusion, then we find this upwelling of the natural qualities of love and compassion and, and wisdom. And let's talk more about how to sort of get in touch with this Buddha nature. We often hear something along the lines of like, you know, who you are is natural awareness and radiance and compassion, (laughs) but that's not our day-to-day experience. Well, at least, you know. Most people, yeah, it's not, yeah. (laughs) So when you say, oh, these are our love and compassion, our natural qualities we can get in touch with at any moment, you know, we often don't feel that way. So Mm. how do we get in touch with this core of our being? Yeah, I think that's a great question. You know, one of the things that really inspired me when I was young when I first got into the Buddhist path, you know, it was like, okay, you're all awakened, but you just forgot. I found that to be so hopeful, actually. You know, it was such an optimistic way, like, right, I have forgotten, because we can really relate to that forgetting who we really are. Isn't, I mean, that's really it. We have these moments of brilliance, right? Our hearts are open. We're, maybe it's like why you're making love or maybe it's why you're watching a sunset or you're having some profound moment and you just see your interconnectedness. You see this beauty in yourself, right? It might just be a second. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. A second, you know, but it's like it's there. Right. It's there. And a lot of times people tap into their Buddha nature more when they are leaving meditation retreats. You know, they spent days, you know, and they're in, they start to enter into this state of sublime, you know, where they feel compassion. They just feel love for their brothers and their sisters. And it comes from living in that gap, Zach, that gap of here and now. You know, where the stories, we press the pause button and we're just resting. There's something in that gap between stories. The more we rest in it, it's like the more the ignorance dissolves. It's the ignorance of separation. It's the ignorance of fear of our brothers and sisters. I mean, what's so sad about the racism is like, you know, people go and they maybe shoot a black man. They're shooting themselves in that moment. To think that you don't ever get away with anything. Everything is lawful, right? What you do to me is done unto you, you know? And it's just, I take a lot of refuge in that too. What's been, what you do to someone, you do to yourself. When you speak about someone, you're speaking about yourself. And so I'm very passionate to share that with people. And so I try to remind people all the time, even when I was at East Bay Meditation Center, and I, I can't even tell you how many Dharma talks I used to give there. You know, Thursday night, Sangha was for communities of color. I gave so many talks there over the last decade. But I always used to tell people, what I'm saying is not new. You know this already. I am reminding you right now. So you might give me credit, but don't give me the credit. 
It's you. (laughs) I'm helping you to remember your true nature, right? And so, so the big thing is remembering. And the second thing is taking time to remember. So you can look at your spiritual practice, not as another grim duty on the to-do list. Oh no, I have to sit for 20 minutes and try to do mindfulness. Don't look at it like that because then that becomes like, you know, oh no, I've got to work out. No, I've got to call my mom. You know, just it becomes a drag. But instead it's like your time to remember your true nature. You know, it's like, yeah, we have to remember because it gets obscured. Our goodness gets obscured and we start acting in ways that are counterproductive to our deepest intention. Now, when you're talking about clearing the gap, I'm imagining or living in the gap. I'm imagining like the clouds parting, Mm. like the clouds of, say, hatred and and greed and delusion. And then a light begins to appear and that that state of sublimity, that that light is, is who we are, although we might identify with the clouds. And it's so inspiring just hearing from you that what we do to others, we do to ourselves because we're all connected. And it is something to remember, but it's something so many people quite clearly have forgotten. Right. Yeah, that's part of the ignorance, right? That we see so much separation. We think that we can say cruel and hateful things and there's no consequences to it because it appears that it's insignificant in the moment. But everything's spoken to another. It's like, you know, this is also the law of cause and effect in the Buddhist tradition that I really, and it's not that you want somebody to be harmed for their actions, is that they will be by their actions. You know, it's law. Every time we speak or we act, we put a seed in the ground. And are we sowing seeds of love? Are we sowing seeds of hatred? And sadly, there's so much seeds of sorrow being sown right now, right? Just people acting in ways that are just killing, harming, inciting, killing and harming of other beings. And so it's something for all of us to to watch and to learn from. And this is a collective experience that the whole world is going through right now. Everybody's observing this. Everyone's talking about this. And what I think is so, there's something I want to mention specifically, like as spiritual practitioners of people who are lovers of truth, and we want to wake up and we want to open our heart and we want to live fiercely. You want to be looking at the internalized oppression and the stories that are alive in you. You want to catch them. You want to catch any area where it could be white supremacy because we're swimming in it, Mm -hmm. right? And it's painful, but we want to, we want to interrupt the narrative, right? We want to see the program. And one of the ways that you can do that is just what's so genius, I think, to catching the program is the three words, Black Lives Matter. To even say it interrupts the programming because there's so many people that can't, that even see the word written, they go into rage, right? Just the three words are kind of genius. They're like a koan. They catch the program, (laughs) right? They interrupt Mm -hmm. it. You know, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm so, I'm so woke. And then we try to say the words and it's like, (laughs) isn't that interesting? Be curious about that. Be really curious about that because we want to take these arrows out of our heart and some are so deep and it's not our fault. It's the culture. It's the programming. So I want to encourage your listeners to be willing to look deeper 
and be just be curious and compassionate about what you discover. It's so true. Like Black Lives Matter is like inputting code into the system. And yes. like, for so many people, this error comes out. I'm like, it blows my mind. Yeah. Like people say, you know, the way people say, yeah, but all lives are blue lives. Yeah. And it's like, it's like these are people that, that need our help right now. And it's it's so funny. There was an interview. I saw somebody where Mike Pence, the vice president, was being interviewed by some black pastors. And they asked him on three or four occasions to say it. And he it was like this look of just like, <laughs> it's like, yeah, it interrupts the code. It's like mm. a, a program that, and it's so interesting how these three words can cause so much in our culture right now. I mean, people are just enraged over it, you know, and then other, it's like, I just love it. There's something about that that's genius. But anyway, yeah. (laughs) I want to return to something you mentioned earlier and kind of combine it with this idea of compassion that we're talking about right now, because you mentioned how there are so many seeds of sorrow being sown right now. Mm. And it's true. It seems every time we turn on the news, first of all, there's the pandemic with millions of people getting sick and hundreds of thousands of people around the world dying. And then we flip the channel and we see another shocking and and heartbreaking video of, of an unarmed person of color being shot or brutalized by the police. And also, I think a lot of white people in particular are almost being awakened to mm. the suffering that has been happening for mm. for centuries, you know, being completely unaware of it. So there's pain and, and there's suffering. And you talk about meeting or being able to meet this with, with compassion. And in your book, you actually talk about compassion as the great chief. Mm. And I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about this great chief and, and why you use this term. Yeah, yeah. I called it the great chief because I was on this retreat one time up in Colorado. I did a solo retreat by myself. First, I was in a small center in Crestone, Colorado for two months, a little Tibetan center practicing with a, a small group. And then I went up to this cabin way up in the wild, you know, it was like, had a little solar panel and a cabin. And I I thought, oh, this is going to be so magical. I'll be alone. And it ended up being one of the most challenging, unbelievably challenging emotional time I ever had alone in this cabin for a few months practicing. And it was during that time where this grief just came. It was just oceans of tears that it would pour out of my eyes. Literally, it would just like pour like faucets, you know, whole towels. I remember having this giant towel. It would be like wet, you know, of just tears and tears and tears. And it would go on in the morning and on at night. And then at night, when it would get dark, I would go into these terrors of being killed and murdered, you know, and I'd be alone and in this cabin. And I would just, and I would just like, I could, I just shook all night. So it was like, oceans of tears all day and then shaking and terror all night. And after about a month, I thought something is happening to me. Something so deep is unwinding, but I I don't know if I have the sanity to do this, to be present with this. I think I need help. And so I started to pray to compassion. I started, and I had only books. I had had no computer, no phone, nothing. I only had a stack of Dharma books 
that were really intense. They were like the nature of mind, volume one to 10. You know, they were like, (laughs) (laughs) but I had this book on compassion by the Dalai Lama. And I was like, I would read it. And I just started praying. I said, I, I have to be able to get through this. And if I don't have care, if I can't care about this pain, then I'll never survive. If I try to push it away, it'll drive me crazy. I can't resist it. I've tried. It was just pouring out. It was like, you know, waking up and the heart just wham, oceans falling, tears, tears, more tears. So I started to pray to compassion every day and Kuan Yin and Mother Mary. And I started to think about all the people around the world who were in retreats. And I saw this as a great purification, but I prayed for compassion. And and then one day it started to show up like this deep compassion. And then I was able to be with my own pain in a, in a way that was bearable because I just kept evoking this deep sense of love for myself that I, I was experiencing so much hurt, you know, and letting it go. It was like unwinding something out of my DNA, you know, and I, I think it had been waiting years to unwind this kind of terror out of my system because at that time, I was living in East Oakland, which was way scarier than this cabin in Colorado. <laughs> so my fear certainly, you know, was I was a very, you know, I was on the eight, 500 acres of the Zochen community protected, but it didn't matter when the mind is gripped and something very deep is releasing you, you know, you're, you're on a train and you have no control. You know, you just, you just pray. All you can do is just pray to stay alive in those moments. And I, and I did because the chief came. And so I started bowing to compassion. I was doing a lot of prostrations on that retreat too, to the Tibetan practices. So I just every day started doing like hundreds of prostrations, bowing to the Buddha of compassion. Mm. Yeah. So it was very beautiful and. That was a life-changing experience because fundamentally I understood compassion on a completely different level. And then I began to understand why in Tibetan Buddhism, the quality is so cherished. I, I, I go, this is why, because if you're really going to let go of the egoic karma and really let go, you need compassion to even heal your own trauma. You can't let go without compassion. You'll hold on forever. It's the compassion that actually lets go of our pain. Does it stops clinging, right? It starts to see where it's hurting us. We start letting go of our hate because we see the pain it inflicts. It's compassion that says, honey, put down the rocks, you know? And so I learned so much. So that chapter is really dedicated to that time. And as you know, I call compassion the great chief because it was like without the chief, of all qualities of the heart, I, I wouldn't have survived it. So it was beautiful in that way. So yes, compassion is why I live, why I do what I do. That's so beautiful. We can't let go without compassion. No, it's impossible. In your story, it's it's incredible. And it reminds me of that phrase, you know, no mud, no lotus, that a month of of tears and shaking <laughs> that turned into an incredible moment of awakening. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember I used to be crying really loud and it would turn into like a gospel song, Mm. you know, and I would see that that was the compassion. Even in the singing, it reminded me of like the songs of my people, you know, like, oh, right. They sung and 
you know, people out on plantations, they would sing to keep their hearts going, you know? And so we have that. We sing, we chant. We want to be on the side of the good here. This is why we live. We want, we use this time, you know, don't waste it. Be it, use it for freedom, you know, standing up and doing stuff like your conversations, creating dialogues, creating opportunities for people to share their stories is so important right now. Yeah, let's talk about the Sangha because we've talked about the first two refuges. We've talked about the Buddha and the Buddha nature, and we've talked about the Dharma and being rooted in truth. So let's talk about the role of the Sangha because you mentioned how we all need to sit at the table and break bread and we can sing together and and share our stories together. So how do we find that Sangha in our lives? How do we cultivate the community of, of like-minded spiritual practitioners to, to support each other's growth and healing? Yeah, I think that's such a great question. You know, it's like, this is all in some way about building family and community. You know, it's so interesting because there's this famous quote where in the Pali Canon where the Buddha's cousin, Ananda, who was his attendant for 35 years of his life was his attendant. And he said, he asked the the Buddha, he says, so blessed one, it seems that friends are, spiritual friends are half of the holy life. And then they said the Buddha corrected him. He said, no, Ananda, spiritual friends are the whole of the holy life, right? And so there's this idea that who you have around you, it brings us power, You know, there's power in numbers. There's power in bringing people together for the good, you know. So we gather with our friends who are inspiring us to to grow and to do more and to practice. You know, our sanghas uplift one another. My understanding of this aspect has been so much more lived in the last few years. Like, oh man, without my spiritual friends, I couldn't live this life the way I do. When I fall down, they pick me up you know, and remind me, dust me off. I'm like, oh, right. And when they fall down, I pick them up, right? And it's this picking up each other that makes the whole march happen. (laughs) You know, like, let's keep on walking, keep on going here, you know? So who you have around you, and for people who are maybe living in remote places or feel like, oh, no, I have no one to connect to, you know, I'm alone in my house right now, pray about it, and you will start attracting friends. Maybe online, you're joining groups or you're, you're going, you know, somewhere in your community or you're, you know, you'll, you'll start to attract it when it becomes important to you. They'll start to show up. So don't give up hope. Even in small towns, there's flowers blooming in the weeds, you know, so you just look for them and you'll, you know, and you'll, you'll attract that. So, but yeah, having a spiritual community, especially right now is just so important. There are flowers blooming in the weeds, so find your flowers. That's so yeah. beautiful. Yeah, and they're there. Don't just look at the weeds, you know? It's easy <laughs> to do. That's what we always do. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much for coming on the show, Spring. I, I could just listen to your talk of wisdom and truth and forgiveness and compassion forever, but we are running out of time. So I want to <laughs> just finish with asking you a question I love to ask all of my guests, which is quite simply, What do you wish everyone knew about love? I think I just wish everyone knew how really when, when we tap into the unconditional aspect of it, 
how powerful it really is. In relationship, it's one level, but when it's turned kind of to all beings, like humanity, like all beings and like this force that I think that just to believe that it's a force that is guiding us, it's soul force, it's universal force. It's called literally the force in Star Wars, you know, that we're (laughs) learning about it to start to trust that it's not just kind of hippie talk, (laughs) like to believe in love, that actually there's something that Dr. King understood about it, right? And these great revolutionaries, they acted in, in the name of love, right? For all of us, whether they were hated or not, you know, they were, they were moving in that direction. So let's try as a community to start to widen our definition and tap into this power that's bigger than maybe anything we've known. I'm, I feel like I, I'm a kindergartner in it. Like I just got like, yeah, kindergartner for sure. You know, and I, maybe next year I'll get to the first grade, you know, and try to understand what is this force? How is it moving through our lives when we attune to it? It can be a guiding light. It can move mountains. It can create pathways through rocks maybe we didn't even know was there and so so just this unconditional part turned toward humanity very powerful yeah remember the power of unconditional love so many things to remember today remember our true nature remember (laughs) compassion (laughs) it's a lot of remembering and we are doing that we're back in time aren't we we're going back in time right now and we have to remember we're remembering history right now we're looking at confederate flags right now we are back in time or retrograde. This means we're going back in our lives. People are dealing with things they thought were done. It's about remembering so that we can move forward, you know, not hanging on to it, but learning and then moving forward. So remembering your Buddha nature, if you forgot today, I hope this conversation reminds you of your mission and your true heart. Yes. Yes. Hallelujah. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Thank you so much. So Spring Washam, springwasham.com, eastbaymeditationcenter.org. Are there any offerings or anything you want our listeners to know about what you're up to right now? Well, you know, people can join on depending on when this airs. I'm doing this amazing class called the Dharma of Harriet Tubman. And so for those who are interested, you can just go on my website and see about that event or check out me anywhere on social media and where, you know, the class is going on till mid-July. So depending on when this goes out, join my Harriet class. It's epic. <laughs> so good. Dharma. <laughs> awesome. I'll take it. Dharma of Harriet Tubman. Yes. Oh, great. Thank you so much again, Spring, for coming on to the show, for sharing your wisdom. And thank you, listeners, for listening to the show. We hope you remember so many things. We hope you remember that the real path of transformation is taught with the whole lineage behind it. We hope you remember your fierce heart and the quality of being able to hold on to the complexity of human experience. We hope you remember your true loving nature and whatever you do, don't forget the power of unconditional love. Thanks again for listening. If you would like to learn more about me, you can go to ZachBeach.com and learn more about the show at TheHeartCenter.com. Thanks again, Spring. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, 
head over to ZachBeach.com or TheHeartCenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 